Well, we've read a letter. And in the letter, we meet three characters. Three characters from whom we can draw lessons. Three lessons, maybe one or two more. Do we have a faithful friend in this letter? We do. Do we have a fraud in this letter? We do. And do we see a follower in this letter? We do. So let's come to the letter and meet these characters. Who's the letter from? Well, it's generally believed that this is a letter from the Apostle John, and it was written around the same time as uh, the second letter just before that, around AD 90, while he was living in Ephesus. But who's it to? Well, in verse 1, we see the answer. The letter is to a man called Gaius, who is beloved, who John loves. Who is he? Who's this man, Gaius? Well, we don't know an awful lot about him. We do know that there's other people called Gaius that we find in the New Testament. We find one in Romans chapter 16, where Paul mentions a Gaius who lived at Corinth, who interestingly enough was commended for his hospitality. And in Acts chapter 19 and Acts chapter 20, we see a Gaius of Macedonia and a Gaius of Derby. Well, whoever he is, he's clearly a very dear friend to John, isn't he? Or beloved, you may have it in your translation. And John says that a few times in this little short letter. And John refers to Gaius as being one of his children. You can maybe think about how Paul called Timothy his son. What a, a great commendation. What an expression of Christian love between these brothers. And John says about Gaius, you're someone that I love in the truth. I don't know whether you've ever had a word of encouragement just when you needed it. I don't know if anybody's come alongside you when you were feeling down, despondent, discouraged, and just said, brother, sister, you know I really love you, or I really love what you do, or the way you serve this church, or the way you care for that particular person, or the thing that you just do and do and do, and no one sees it. Thank you. If you've ever had that at the right time, what a lovely thing that is. What a wonderful encouragement that is. And John writes this letter to Gaius, and maybe this came at a time when he needed to hear these words of encouragement. Because if he was struggling with opposition in the church, and we'll see that suggested in a few minutes, then how encouraging it would have been for him to know that the apostle John loves him and treats him as a brother who he loves in the truth. Other people might not love you, brother, but I do. John can say, there might be people working against you, even in your own church, and there were, but I love you, and your service gladdens my heart, and I want you to know that, and I want you to keep on doing what you're doing. Well, what's this prayer that John prays for him? In verse 2, John says, I'm praying for you. You could just stop there for a minute and take that as a lesson to take away. Just go to someone after the service and genuinely say, I'll pray for you. You need to do it, of course. Pray for you. 
You could just stop there. But John goes on and he says, I'm praying for you. And he says the things that he's praying for. He says to Gaius, I'm praying for you that you may prosper in all things, that you may be in health. So he's praying for, the, for good health. He's praying for some of the material things of life. It isn't wrong, is it, to pray for those things. Good health is a blessing, and you, kn you know that more than ever when you don't have it. But John can pray for these things for Gaius in the knowledge and with the certainty that he's spiritually healthy. He's prospering spiritually just as your soul prospers, it says in verse 2. If you like, he says, I want you to be as strong in body as you are in spirit. Well, there are some people, maybe even some here tonight, who put a lot of effort into physical activity. Some of us do it, and you don't even notice that we've done it. I'm not talking about myself. Here's a little thing to take away. If there was a gym for the soul, how many times would you have been this past week? Some people might have been the gym three, four, five times, or they might have done their their run or their football or whatever it is. But if there was a gym for the soul, how much would you have been this week? If there was a Weight Watchers for the soul, would you be making progress? Or if your soul had a bank balance, what would it look like? How would John have to pray for me and for you? Would he have to perhaps turn it round that our spiritual health needed to catch up with our physical health or our material well-being. John prays for Gaius that he may be in health just as his soul is prospering. And then John says something that's a great joy to him in verse 3. What is it then that's John's great joy? What is it that's got John so happy and rejoicing? Well, it isn't that Gaius has just been able to complete his 5k or his half marathon it isn't that he's had a promotion at work or he's had some other great achievements but in verse 3 he says it's a spiritual thing that I'm encouraged to hear because I'm hearing that my children are walking in the truth how did he know that didn't have social media to tell him that wasn't coming up on twitter other people have told him he's had good reports that Gaius is walking in the truth. It's quite often the case, isn't it, that when we have problems in Christian life, when we have problems in churches, it's because people don't want to hear the truth or don't want to live by the truth and don't want it to direct what they must do in response to that truth. And so when we preach and when we teach and when we study together, that's one of the goals, isn't it? That we explain the truth clearly and that we all walk together in that truth. A man called David Jackman, who wrote a, a study on this book, said, A pastor's heart is surely warmed and thrilled when he sees real spiritual progress in those under his care. A pastor's heart is surely warmed and thrilled when he sees real spiritual progress in those under his care. So let's ask ourselves a question. What is it that gives you and gives me the most joy in life? Is it our achievements? Is it the achievements of our children 
or our families or those that we know? Or is it to see others who are faithful in the truth, growing day by day, week by week, little by little in Christ? And what is the state of your spiritual health? What is the state of my spiritual health? Sometimes if you change jobs, your employer might ask you to take a medical. What would my spiritual medical, what would your spiritual medical look like for us? And then in the next few verses, we see something of how Gaius's example of walking in the truth was actually lived out because he was commended for faithfully giving hospitality to the brethren, to, uh, to others out of love. What is his main notable quality? Well, this is what we read in these verses. He, he's just constantly opening his doors. He's constantly offering hospitality to those who come um, to his home or ac- across his path or through the church that he's in. Doesn't exactly explain how, but John says, this is a great thing that you do. And I want you to keep it up. I want you to continue this great work that you're doing that encourages these other Christians. Maybe some of them he knew, but the suggestion here is that many of them were strangers. Maybe they were traveling teachers. Maybe they were traveling evangelists. Maybe they were gospel workers, but it doesn't matter who they were. They all received this same warm welcome from Gaius when they came to his door. Perhaps doing this, perhaps offering this hospitality for Gaius meant that sometimes his own plans had to be put on hold. Perhaps he'd have to cancel that thing he wanted to do. Today, in our terms, perhaps I would have to miss that football game. Perhaps I would have to put on hold that thing with the family that we'd planned to do. But he did it. Gaius did it. Because it was important. And because he could see this was a service And because of something else, we'll see in a moment. What did Jesus have to say about this topic? Well, in Matthew chapter 25, I'll just read a few words from Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. That's what Jesus says about that topic. Did the Apostle Paul have anything to say about this? Well, he did. In Romans chapter 12 and Verse 13, there's an exhortation to practice hospitality. And so this is part of the truth that John is encouraged to hear about in the life of this man, Gaius. 
Because Christian teaching isn't just something that we believe up here that just goes in and swills around in the brain, but it has to make a difference in our lives. The rubber has to hit the road, you might say. The front door has to be opened. Maybe ask, what gift do I exercise for the good of other Christians? It doesn't just have to be this, but there, is, there has to be ways in which we'll serve one another. But Gaia sets us this example here and reminds us that sharing meals together is a great thing, isn't it, in the life of the church. And many people have been welcomed into fellowship in this way at different times. What else could you do? Practically for some of us, this is, is not always easy. But what else could you do? You could take someone out for coffee. You could pop round and visit someone. We could encourage someone just by being there with them, by phoning them, by showing them that we are really interested in care. We could meet and pray with someone. We could do all kinds of different things, but look at what this man, Gaius, is doing with these brethren and with these strangers that we read of in verse five. And then in verse six, we see that Gaius wasn't just a good host because he was generous too, as he sent out these visitors on their way. It says that he sent people forward on the journey in a manner worthy of God. Perhaps he made provisions for them. Perhaps he gave them food. Perhaps he gave them sufficient money as they continued on their journey to wherever they were going. Perhaps it was at cost to himself. Why would he do that? I don't know if you've ever been in, in work or somewhere and people say, what did you do at the weekend? And you might, you know, if you've done it, you might say, oh, we had a, a load of people around for dinner. And sometimes people say, well, why, why would you want to do that on a, on a Sunday? You know, give up your time to have loads of people in, in your house. Because it's a joy, because it's commanded. Be or, or if you have been to Gladstones or somewhere, or if you've been serving in some other way and people say, why do you give up your time to do stuff like that? Well, Gaius knew that just as God abounds in his love towards us and just as he provides for our every need out of his riches, aren't we to do the same? Aren't we to abound in love and in mercy and in grace with great generosity out of such as what we have because of what he has done for us? And then Gaius his account goes on in verse seven, because it says that this is all done so that God's name may be glorified and honored. And as Gaius has these people in and as he sends them out again so that they can carry on and they can serve the Lord and they're not um, stopped from doing so because they just can't afford to carry on or because they're too hungry or too cold. He wants them to be able to give themselves to the preaching of the gospel. And because they got help from this man, they didn't have to go and seek it from, as it says here, the Gentiles, or if you like, the unbelievers or the pagans, as it says in other translations. Gaius knew that Christians need to take the lead if, uh, and support other Christians in this way. If Christians won't do it, then who else will? That's not a good thing, is it? What would it say to the world if Christians leave other Christian workers struggling in poverty and scratching a living? They'd say, 
Well, you lot don't practice what you preach, do you? Those people are yours and you just ignore them. Well, Gaius wasn't like that, was he? Gaius knew that it was his joy and his privilege to help in God's work however we can, and this was however he could, and he did. And then in verse 8, we see that John says, we ought to do this. We ought to receive such so that we may become fellow workers for the truth. We should do it together, says John. It's a reminder that the gospel work needs all of us. There's a part for all of us in some way. We might not all be called to go out. We might not all be called to open our doors and have people in, but there is something that we all can do. As some people go out, some people might be the party back at base to support the others. There were the Gaiuses, there were the traveling evangelists, there were the teachers, but they were all in it together. And verse eight reminds us that we are working together for the truth. So we see all these lessons, don't we, in this man, Gaius. But then the apostle John goes on and he introduces another character and we'll see our second character now. And this guy's completely different. This is a man called Diotrephes. And he's, or what is said about him is actually pretty horrific because he's a Christian fraud of the worst kind. He's like a cancer in the church. We're not told what position he's got. We're not told if he's, you know, if he's the top man, if he's the pastor, or if he's got any position of official office, but he's obviously the one who is pulling the strings in this church. We can see that John's tried to write to the church, but the letter's not got there. Perhaps this man has stopped the letter from being read out. He stopped the other members from hearing the encouragement that John had previously wanted to write. And what is it then about this man that makes him tick? Well, Diotrephes is somebody who wants to be the main man. He wants to be the one who all the attention is on. If you like, he wants to have the preeminence. He wants to be first. He wants to be known. He wants to be seen. He wants to be up there. He wants everyone to say, that's his church. He loves to be in the limelight. He loves to have his own voice heard. He loves his own opinions to be pushed. And doesn't just stop there, does it? Because it says in those verses 9 to 11 that he actually turns people away from the church. And this man is doing all of these things. He won't welcome other Christians in. Maybe because they would see through him. We're not actually told that he's promoting false teaching. We're not told that he's bringing all these false teachers in trying to take over the church that way. We're just told that he's shutting Christians out. He's bullying them. He's pushing his own ideas. And he wants the church to be run his way. My way or the highway. One of the characteristics that if you just went out into the street and asked people, what should a Christian be like? probably wouldn't take them too long, even if they weren't a Christian themselves, to get to the word humility or humble, I don't think. Could try it. But this man, 
in this man is the complete opposite of humility, isn't there? Complete lack of humility, just a total desire that he be first. When we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't see anything like this man, do we? We see in the Lord Jesus Christ someone who humbled himself. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. We see in this man Diotrephes an attitude that says, me first. We heard from Jesus the words, the first shall be last. And for this man, maybe this church is his life. Maybe this church is like his prized possession. He's the one in the spotlight. He's not going to let anyone change that easily. Oh, there's a visiting speaker going to come next week. Don't want him. My church. Oh, there's somebody coming in who's going to be able to help teach us and build us up. Don't want him. This is my church. Isn't that a dangerous and a deadly spirit that we see in this man who, verse 9, says, loves to have the preeminence among them and won't receive us? So there's some things we need to take note of as we look at this man, isn't there? Anyone who's got a place of um, prominence, which isn't the same as preeminence, is it? Needs to watch out. Because here's something that maybe just grew little by little in him. Maybe he started out and he was fine. But perhaps over time, the desire to be in the limelight, the desire to have his voice heard, the desire to be the main man grew and grew and grew. So we need to pray for each other, don't we? That that spirit doesn't grow in us, that it doesn't grow in me, that it doesn't grow in any of us. Let's pray that it's not something that grows in us with a desire for leadership in any way in the future. That leadership isn't just about, I'd love to be up at the front one day I'd love to be able to preach to 100 or 200 people or I'd love to be able to play music to 500 people in a beautiful church in a packed hall. We need to be careful, don't we, of what motivates us, of our attitudes in these things. And we can remember, can't we, how Paul helpfully taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're a body, that the church is a body and that the body is made up of many parts. The hand, the arm, the foot, the eye, the head, the ear, all together working perfectly to create the body. Many parts, but just one body. And so as Paul teaches these things, then we can't desire to have things that we're not equipped to do, that the Spirit hasn't given us to do and here we see in this man somebody who absolutely and categorically was not qualified to be a leader in that church but he decided he should be we need to pray don't we for the church's leaders as we have to discern these things in the life of the church we said at the last members meeting that a couple of us me and steve need to be re-elected as elders uh, at some point in the future do we need to hold a campaign vote for me 
six more years, is it six or is it four? I can't remember. What about the next elders who one day will have to replace me and Steve and Ian and Eamon? You fancy that? Should you be putting yourself out there? No. The church came to find its elders and we prayed and you prayed and we asked together, Lord, God, are these the right people to serve in this way? You can see some of the things that Diotrephes does that, that John speaks of. He says he's gossiping maliciously in verse 10. You have this rather quaint word here, prating or gossiping, you'll see uh, in other versions. Just, just talking badly about people with the express purpose of just bringing them down, of just rubbishing their character, of doing them no good at all. You see it, don't you, in walks of life. You see it quite a bit in politics. You might have had enough of it by now with Brexit and everything else. He said this. They lied about this. They said that. But have you seen what he's really like? And have you seen what she does? And have you seen how much he spends on this, that and the other? And suddenly it's gone from politics to nothing connected to politics. And it's just personal attacks on people designed to bring them down. It can happen out there. It can happen in here if we let it. So we mustn't, must we? And then we can see how Diotrephes turns these people away. He just rejects them. A visiting pastor or elder or preacher arrives at the door. Maybe even an, the Apostle John himself turns up. And what would this man do? Would he welcome them in? No. He shuts the door in their faces and locks it tight. That's the picture we have of him here. He does not receive the brethren. Instead of the hospitality we've just seen in Gaius, we see hostility from this man. Instead of greeting them as fellow Christian workers with open arms, he sees them as rivals to beware of, and he wants nothing to do with them. And instead of the church being built up by their ministry, he just wants to make sure no one looks better than he does. And this is a man in leadership in the church. We mustn't let it be the case in here, must we? And we see also in this man a bullying spirit. What a place to be. Imagine you in the, in the life of that church. He won't let anyone offer hospitality to people that he hasn't vetted. Can you imagine uh, you want to go to open house? Are you on the list? No, you're not on the list. Uh, you want to have them for lunch? No, you can't do that. I'm in charge. And he kicks people out of the church according to his own feelings. He just looks like a guy completely out of control, doesn't he? He's just trying to use power that he just shouldn't have. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful that I'm not in a church like this one that's painted here. Don't like you? Out. Don't want him preaching? Out. Don't want you offering hospitality to them? No. I'm preaching. I'm in charge. I make the rules, is what we see in this man. And so that's why we sang at the start of our service about unity. 
about how good it is when we share the same view of God, when we share the same view of truth. Can you see why now? In this church, where there should be unity, where there should be building up, there's division and there's tearing down. And John in verse 11 even goes on and says, Beloved, Gaius, readers, do not imitate what is evil. That's what he thinks of it. And John's plea is that nobody would look at this man and think that's what being a leader looks like because it absolutely isn't. We don't want to be in a church which says, well, nothing can happen without Mr. X's approval, without Diotrephes' approval because it's his church and what he says goes. But there is one who should have the preeminence in the church isn't there? There's only one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. A real Christian leader, someone opposite to Diotrephes, will say, as John the Baptist said in John chapter 3 and verse 30, see, we got back to John chapter 3, he must become greater, and I must become lesser. So there's this man Diotrephes, the Christian fraud. And then we see our third character in this little letter and final character. And this is Demetrius. And we meet him in verse 12. And you could call him a Christian follower or a faithful Christian follower because we don't see much about this man Demetrius, but what we do see is hugely encouraging, isn't it? The kind of person that we are is often and is always far more important than what achievements we might have or what success we might have enjoyed. Because in Demetrius, we see character being the key and the fact that he has a good testimony from all who speak about him. Now, you don't have to read the news for very long or look at social media for too long until you, you'll find some celebrity who's been in the spotlight because they've stumbled in some way. They've been accused of something or they've admitted something or they've done something and been caught doing something. And yet, in many ways, the media still loves them and the world still loves them. Affairs, phew, doesn't matter. Infidelity, it's everywhere. Drink driving, even violence, whatever it might be, people are built up come down, built back up again. Because the things they do, the success they have, the money they have or the particular skill they have is deemed to be far more significant, isn't it? Than the flaws that their characters have shown. There's been a, quite a twist on that this week, hasn't there? Where some of you might have seen the, the news story about this rugby player, this Australian rugby player, a guy called Israel Falau. By all accounts, he's a brilliant rugby player, one of the best for Australia. But in the week, he posted something on, in his social media account, and he's going to be sacked for it. And what he posted was basically a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and you can look it up later. And the world has been absolutely vitriolic in his condemnation of him. Because on this issue, it doesn't matter how good a rugby player he is. The equality agenda and all that goes with it is more important. And he's going to be sacked, probably, from his contract. 
with Australian rugby. As some of the people who've commented on, on that case have said, his character, this is what the world says anyway, they've proved that his character is flawed and he must be re-educated and he must apologise. And this is how the world has now viewed his character. But what sort of character do we need in the church? Well, John says, look at Demetrius. Here's a man who has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. Because G Demetrius is a man in whom we can see qualities of great character. The first thing to see is that he's got a good testimony from everyone who gives it. Sometimes if you go for a job, you have to give more than one reference, sometimes two or three or four. It'd be easy for, for Ben to come for a job with me and, and somebody said, Ben, he's a great guy, done, sorted. But if I have to ask two people or three people or four people, oh, well, they're not all going to say exactly the same thing, are they? But if they all say his character is good, then that's what you want to hear, isn't it? As an employer or as somebody who's looking to put someone into a particular position. So how is it for Demetrius? Well, we're told in verse 12 that he has a good testimony from all. All who know him give only a good report about him. Remember how they were choosing the deacons in Acts chapter 6? And in verse 3, the instruction was given choose seven men from among you known to be full of the spirit and wisdom not guessed to be not oh they might be or they might not be known to be full of the spirit and wisdom if we had to do that character thing and take it to its extreme and I had to get 20 or 30 or 40 people to give a report about me, what would they all say? What would my character look like after it was mapped out by those 20, 30, 40 people? Would any of them say, <clears throat> or would any of them say about you, really, Phil, Pete, Dave, a Christian, really? But this man, Demetrius, has a good testimony from all. And then we're told that he has, in verse 12, a, he has a good testimony from the truth. We're told that the way he is, the character he has, is properly in line with the things we find in here, in God's word. We find that his character is shaped and is built and is molded on the word of God. It's been underpinned by the things that we have in our hands here. It's what God's truth is supposed to do, isn't it? It's supposed to mould us. It's supposed to change us. And our character, and it may not be as quick as we'd like, but little by little, we're to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? Demetrius has a good testimony from all. And he has a good testimony when you line it up against the things that you read in the word of God. And then at the end of verse 12, it says he's got a good testimony from a proven witness. Because John says, we also bear witness. And you know 
that our testimony is true. I had to give evidence in court a, a couple of times when I was doing a previous job. It's a bit of an intimidating thing, actually. And I wasn't the one, I think I've mentioned this in a sermon before, I wasn't the one on trial, but I felt like I was because you've got an imposing barrister or whatever down there trying to make out that the things I'm saying are not true or that I don't know what I'm talking about properly because I don't know my subject well enough. And the questions he was asking me were designed to trip me up so that I would give a bad testimony. I don't know whether he succeeded or not because um, the guy that we were, we were against was, ended up being found guilty. But he had a good testimony from a reliable witness in John. And you know, says John, that our testimony is true. And so John can say that Demetrius has a good testimony and then maybe in future years, Demetrius can say that he has a good testimony and he has a good testimony and the chain can be passed on. And so this letter closes in verses um, 13 and 14 with John's final words. He says, I've got a lot, of, a lot to write to you, but I want to see you soon face to face. And as we think of our lives and as we think of the life of this church, let's be inspired by Gaius and his selfless and his serving attitude to the Christians he was amongst. Let's be warned and let's be horrified by what we see in Diotrephes, this power mad man who'd reached a position in the church he should never have had. Let's pray that we don't let him in here. And let's be heartened by the clear testimony that everyone has about Demetrius. What lessons can we learn from them? What lessons can we take away this evening? Or perhaps we can use as our closing hymn this idea that we don't want to put ourselves first but actually can we sing together all to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give